Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 312. Today is Sunday the 27th of January 2019, and this interview is with Michael Ventura, who is the founder and CEO of Subrosa, a strategy and design practice that believes that meaningful work starts with applied empathy. He's also the author of the book of the same title, Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. Michael works with companies around the world on how to apply empathy to business, specifically focusing on cognitive empathy and provides a cogent argument to persuade business leaders on why empathy can help drive their business. In this discussion, we discuss how and why to bring cognitive empathy into your business, including a fascinating experience of bringing empathy to the cadets at West Point. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So Michael Ventura, uh, I'm so glad to have you on the show. You and I exchanged uh, one of my trips to New York, and I, I came across you before I met you through all your work at Subrosa and your wonderful book uh, called Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. So uh, in your own words, Mike, tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. And thanks. Thanks for having the conversation. Um, so I started Subrosa about 10 years ago uh, with the premise that doing work with brands and helping organizations grow and learn and evolve uh, certainly needed, but it also needs uh, something that I think was missing in the world, which was this idea of empathy and really perspective taking, getting into the shoes, getting into the mindset of other people and using that to deeply affect how leadership takes place uh, and also uh, problems get solved. So we built a approach to that and have been flying that uh, with clients in the for-profit and nonprofit sector uh, for about a decade now. So when you looked at writing the book Applied Empathy, was it sort of the obvious thing it was only about empathy because let's say that there's other avenues of thought which is well we could do with some more emotions at work as well yeah i think it's, it's a great way of thinking about that i would say that for us it is the entry point but it is not the only point uh with with our way of solving problems if we're doing a good job of getting out of our own heads getting out of our own shoes early in the process then all the logical side effects of empathy start to emerge right one of the one of those side effects might be compassion one of those side effects might be uh sympathy right and so one of the things that that we've spent a lot of time talking with clients about is that the, the, we have to define empathy first and foremost, because when people hear it, often they misconstrue it for those those side effects, right? They think empathy equals being nicer to each other or empathy equals being more sympathetic. And while those are uh, often good side effects, they are not empathy unto itself. And so for us, starting with empathy really kind of opens the aperture to find other more um, uh, uh, opportunistic areas to grow. To the extent that this is obviously a combined shared passion or topic uh, yet maybe everyone has a, d- a slightly different take on what is empathy and, and how it's not sympathy and compassion which sometimes is the conflation that people make about it so how do you define empathy and then really specifically why is it so important for business 
Yeah. So our definition of it is self-aware perspective taking to gain richer and deeper understanding. And while self-aware is a loaded phrase, because certainly um, one can never be wholly self-aware. And if you are, you're probably not doing marketing services. Um, the, the idea with it is that can you be aware enough of your unconscious biases? Can you be aware enough of the, the tendencies you may have in the process of solving a problem or providing leadership to someone? And can you step outside of those for a period of time? Can you suspend your, yourself um, and really see and feel the world from someone else? And the type of empathy we're talking about is cognitive empathy. There are plenty of books and plenty of discourse around uh, what some people call almost a quote-unquote feeling into someone else, um, which is a bit more somatic empathy. Um, you know, you read uh, articles and, and papers written about how uh, particularly nurses and doctors suffer from uh, what's called now empathy burnout because they're feeling the emotions of their patients so regularly that it's actually taxing on their own system. And that's not the type of empathy we're talking about. That That is a place you can go with this, certainly, and, and there's pros and cons to working in that way. But for us, um, it's very difficult to get people to go straight to that. It's not uh, something that everyone has a ability to do. It's not, a, it's not something everybody has a willingness to do. Um, so what we really focus on is cognitive empathy. Can you suspend your own perspective enough to view a situation from the shoes of another and understand their point of view deeply enough that you can use that as an input to your interaction with someone? And so to answer your second question, that's why I think it's really a, a meaningful tool for business, because what we're talking about from a leadership standpoint is if you can't do that, if you can't see the situation from your colleague or your boss or your team's point of view um, or your client's point of view in some, certain instances, um, you won't you will be ultimately doing a disservice to them in the interaction. So when you're dealing with your customers, Michael, are you are obviously talking about leadership but and as i try to dissect it in in my book artificial empathy I, I i talk about empathy as something one can do within the company and then without the company towards the stakeholders and customers to what extent is you, if you had to weigh up which is where is the best payoff in in terms of upping your empathy how do you gauge that when you're talking to your customers? That's mm. a good question. I think it kind of depends to some degree on the job to be done, right? So, for example, a CEO in a multinational is probably spending most of their time managing direct reports and dealing with the internal machinations of the business, right? They're thinking about how uh, each of their direct reports is solving problems, thinking through solutions, and their expectation is often that those direct reports are doing enough of that work externally that they're bringing that view into their solution already, right? So it, it, it kind of depends on the, the, the role you play. Um, if I'm a chief marketing officer, my job really should be focused on a lot of external perspective taking, what are my consumers? What are my customers? What are my B2B partners? What are my, uh, whatever it might be, wholesalers thinking and talking about and focusing on? And can I make sure that 
I'm pulling those insights into my own thinking so that my thinking can be as well-rounded and inclusive as possible. So that's sort of the way I've seen it play out most of the time is that depending on your role, you may need to be more external or more internal, and that may shift depending on the, the, the time of day. Hmm. And so then to the extent that you have the external cognitive empathy in place, I, I, my line of thinking, because of course I haven't played it out, and you've certainly been in this space longer than I have, which is to what extent you can do empathy externally without it happening and being turned on internally. Yeah, it's it's challenging, certainly, because – and sorry, to clarify, do you mean internally within an organization or That's within right. oneself? Within what, no, within the organization, right. Okay. So yeah, within the organization, if there is not a appetite for – that sort of behavior, right? That sort of perspective taking. If there's a take a take a a culture that is sort of organized around what we know is is best, right? And and our our you know our thinking is the best thinking. We don't need external perspective. We 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 know we know what's right and what's wrong. Um, often those companies don't have a long shelf life because, especially in this day and age, where consumers have a realistic expectation that information and brands will meet them on their terms and will communicate with them in a nearly personalized way. Um, Brands that are doing that, brands that are feeling more connected to and empathic toward those consumers are ultimately the ones that curry the most favor and build the most uh, um, deep relationships. So if it doesn't, if there's not a, if, if a value is not placed on empathy internally, it's very hard to justify the investment in time externally because frankly empathy does slow things down before it speeds them up you have to have that second conversation you have to ask that second question you have to go a little deeper and maybe the meeting lasts longer or the interview lasts longer or the conversation with a with a customer lasts longer in the beginning because you're making an extra effort to understand more deeply but once you get through that and it starts to become a bit more somaticized and part of your your own process that's when the 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 sort of j curve occurs and you start to accelerate and and the understanding becomes part of your own thinking process and and ultimately speeds things up so you have just revealed if you will one of the challenges of empathy which is it does take more time to listen and ask the next question but as you're going into it when you're dealing with the c-suite you say listen here you guys we need to we need to up our ante upper you know i like to call about you know strengthening your empathy muscle Mm-hmm. What type of resistance do you get? I mean, is it like, oh, no, what is this soft shit? We don't need this. We know what yeah. we're doing. <laughs> what type of resistance do you do you feel with regard to the topic of empathy when you're talking in C-suites? Uh, you're mostly based in New York, if I understand correctly. Um, yeah, our, our team is based in New York. Our clients are everywhere. Well, then you're not in North America. Both in and internationally. Oh, okay. And I would say – uh, well, no, I mean, we, we uh, in Asia and, and uh, in uh, Europe as well. So, I mean, I would say oh. that there are cultural differences to um, region to region. But mm. generally speaking, the first thing we get from a skeptic, right, because there, there, rarely is it neutral. Rarely, rarely do we walk in and someone have no opinion or a neutral opinion of empathy. Either they're a proponent of and have found us because of that, or they're a doubter of, but someone else has brought us in to try to be a, a, a fire starter on this topic inside the organization. And so the resistance is often, is this about being nicer to people, hmm. right? So the, fir- the first reaction is usually a, uh, a wrong definition of empathy that has to get unlearned and, and retaught. Um, the other reaction is how is this going to impact 
my business? What's the ROI? What, what does empathy actually pay off at the end of the day? And so those are usually the two, the two first sort of uh, uh, walls we run into when we're doing this, this sort of work. Now, the good news is the first one's easy to solve, right? You, you, you reset the table. You explain what empathy is and isn't. And much like we started this conversation, when you, when you unpack that it's not about being nice and it's not about those things, it's really just about perspective taking in order to gain deeper understanding, people, people can co-sign that pretty easily. Um, when you get into what is the ROI, this is where the conversation starts to become more rich because some of the returns are going to be easily quantifiable in the near term. And again, thinking about this on, on a time scale, that's really the, the, uh, the, the, the yardstick that's most effective. So what I mean by that is you might be able to say that if you understand your consumers more deeply, you will sell, you will, you will sell your product more effectively to them. And yes, that's, that's likely to be true. Um, you may not see that result, for six months because you may have to retool marketing campaigns. You may have to change the way you use social media. You may have to do certain things that actually shift the, the dialogue um, and exhibit that empathy before you actually see the net effect of it. Um, there are other things, though, that are often um, less, uh, less quantifiable in the near term uh, on an internal basis. So what you find is that teams become uh, more collaborative. They become more higher functioning. Uh, your retention of top talent increases. Your ability to recruit new talent increases because the the sense of understanding and the willingness to uh, put yourself into the shoes of other people starts to breed this different shift in culture that starts to become more inclusive, more collaborative, more more inviting. Um, but that doesn't happen overnight, right? That takes practice. That takes that takes recommitment time and time again to this idea in order to see it bear fruit. And of course, it's it's rather difficult to make the direct link. Yeah, exactly. You can't it, you can't necessarily draw a straight line and say because we did this six months ago, now it looks like this. Um, but what you start to see is um, smaller points of uh, of proof that you can assemble over a period of time and say, okay, look at the look at the retention line on the business. Look at the sales line on the business. Look at this, look at this, look at this. And when you overlay all of those on top of each other and you track that back to when a more empathic process and an empathic leadership style started to be implemented, you can really start to see the correlation. So have you ever had a situation like this, Mike, where, you, where someone says, all right, yeah, 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 all right, I get, I get point one, I get point two, it's going to be good long term, even though I have no idea, wing and a prayer, I've got 15 minutes, uh, what do I need to do to make our organization more empathic? Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's, it's a very common thing for us. Um, one of the first things that we have to do is, uh, is, teach, is teach the ability to listen. Right. And teach unteach the ability for people to do what is most common, particularly in high paced, uh, often um, pressure cooked C-suite level conversations, which is when someone is talking, you are planning what you want to say. You're not listening. Right. You're actually like you're half listening, but you're really kind of planning your rebuttal or you're planning your your response to whatever it is they're getting into. Um, it's also about teaching and and bringing into practice this idea that um, external points of view should be valued and should be included in the process. And um, without them, you're really perpetuating an echo chamber where you, you may all five, six of you in the C-suite sit in a room and believe you know the right answer. But what are the external uh, points of view that have been brought 
into this room to help validate that. And, uh, and frankly, that is only, that is only learned in practice. Most of this stuff is only learned in practice. It's not learned, um, and, uh, and, 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 and made successful only by theory. You have to put it in motion and see. And so that's where some organizations stumble because they, you know, they may do the half day training for their leadership team, but then if everyone goes back to business as usual, nothing's going to change. And so having the ability to check back in on them, having the ability to make sure that progress is being made and to have, uh, measurements uh, in place that we can go back to time and again and say, how has this evolved? How has this changed? What have you learned? What's improving? That's that's really where the rubber meets the road. So give us an idea of those checks and balances or measurements, because uh, as you say, so many of these, this is a behavioral challenge and, and it involves having the time to clean the slate before I listen to what Mike Ventura is telling me. And then it requires me, maybe based on that, what insightful question should I be asking, which is about helping me understand better what's in Mike Ventura's context, not how I'm going to slap him with my next question or sell him my next product. Right. So I'll give you an example with a technology company that we've been working with recently. So their mid-tier management rung in the organization. So people who have you know, probably somewhere between 10 and 20 years of experience who are responsible for leading teams of probably as three, 400 people, perhaps as small as maybe five to 10 people um, have had a challenge with using empathy because their, their responsibilities are, this is that, that pinch point, that complex pinch point in a lot of organizations where you're at this level in the organization where you've been given a lot of responsibility, but you don't necessarily have tons of experience with that type of responsibility. Um, you've got a lot of pressure and demands. You're managing up and you're managing down. And, uh, and, and so much of the business's success is really highly reliant on your ability to do that well, to go up and go down, to, to go out and go in. And so one of the things that that we're able to do is to actually take a look at performance evaluation criteria as well as um, remuneration structures and figure out either in the form of peer evaluation um, or uh, measurable um, things like employee churn within your team or uh, uh, retention of clients or whatever whatever the right metrics are depending on your organization. How do we put those in place and evaluate them on a on a quarterly basis so that you're getting quick real time feedback? This isn't annualized. This is you know kind of learning things in in real time um, to see how well you're doing. But tying it to tying it to comp, tying it to to uh, some form of remuneration is sometimes the incentive that needs to put, be put in place, right? So if your colleagues. Uh, who you are reporting into, so you're, you're, you're managing up relationships, are telling you you're doing a great job and you're, you're delivering great work and it seems to be connected to the consumer needs and all of this sort of stuff that matters. But all of your direct reports have said that you don't listen, you don't provide enough mentorship and you're not making enough time to really understand what's happening in the world around you. Well, then, you know, there's that's going to directly impact uh, your, your promotions, your growth, your bonus, your comp, whatever it might be. Um, that's sometimes the unfortunate incentive people need because sometimes it's not enough to just say this will do this will be the right thing for us in our business. Go do it. Sometimes they need that extra motivator. And so we've had to restructure those types of things in certain organizations in order to incentivize people to bring empathy into their practice. So I, I like that. I, in a podcast I had with Norm DeGrev, who's the CMO of CVS, 
uh, the, their approach was in terms of measurement to ask the question in their questionnaire of customers, did they feel that the service they received in the store was empathic? And and so that's just a direct question. Yep. I was wondering to what extent you would be a believer in asking the direct question and or should there be surround sound questions that really qualify what perceived empathy is? Because in the end of the day, that's what we're usually talking about. Yeah, I, I, it's and this isn't a cop out. It's probably a bit of both. Uh, I think that the, the, the direct question is certainly valuable, but you have to make sure that those terms are well-defined because, like I said at the beginning, uh, mis- empathy is what I've come to find one of the most often misdefined terms in people's minds. People, people have – empathy has been so overused, particularly in the past few years, and there is even within the proper definitions of empathy the difference between uh, you know, a feeling into and somatic empathy versus a cognitive empathy, right? So what do we really mean by this, right? D- did you feel understood by your pharmacist uh, when you came and, and filled your prescription? Um, might be a better phrasing of that than using the word empathy so that we can really drill in on what is the, what is the pure ask inside this, right? Because if we, if we leave it to the everyday consumer to self-define empathy, we may have a hard time. That said, uh, peripheral questions that may wrap around that, you know, how does the, uh, how does the pharmacy environment feel do you feel you know on a scale of one to five how welcome did you feel when you came in right you know how understood did your problem feel right those types of questions might help round out the the point of view a bit more in my research i had a lot of great people to whom i was allowed to ask questions and get some feedback and and better understand the nuances and the different ways people approach this marie Miyashiro, uh, who's also a leader in the empathy space based out in wonderful Hawaii, she talks a lot about the importance of self-empathy. So I was wondering to what extent that comes uh, into play in the way you work with your customers. Critical. For us, uh, if you can't have empathy for yourself, and this is a hotly debated topic, I don't know if Marie yes. um, shared this with you, but there are a lot of psychologists who would say you cannot have self-empathy and that that's actually like cognitively impossible. And what I would say is that you cannot have complete self-empathy, but you can have incomplete self-empathy for sure. And what I mean by that is there are often facets of ourself we can and do understand well. And there are often facets of ourself that are complete blind spots, right? Um, And so one of the uh, frameworks we've developed within our applied empathy approach is something we refer to as the whole self. And I've done this exercise with large organizations where I've sat in a room with hundreds of people. And in the span of an hour, we will go through a seven stage diagnostic self-diagnostic it's very qualitative there is no quant that sits inside this because it is reflective and it is very personal work that they have to do but i'll ask questions like one of the selves i won't go through all seven but you know to give you some context there's the physical self right how do how aware are you of your physical body um you know most people treat their physical body like a taxi taking their brain to meetings Right. They're not they're not aware of the fuel they're putting in the stomach. They're not like I'll ask people to take a, a slow, deep breath in this in this portion of the workshop and they'll take a slow, deep breath. And then I'll look at the room and I'll say, raise your hand if you took a breath like that today. And a few hands go up. Raise your hand if you took a breath like that this week. 
maybe a few more hands go up. But most people's hands don't. And most people then realize, I am completely unaware of my breathing. I'm shallow breathing. I'm panting my way through the day, right? I'm not, I'm not actually taking full oxygenating breaths. I'm not monitoring. I'm basically just a, a moving a, a machine. I'm a machine moving my brain to and from meetings. And some people are super aware of that. You know, they might have a daily yoga practice or a daily meditation practice, and that that's an easy self for them to tune into. But then we'll ask another self, the emotional self, and I'll ask a question like, what is the most common emotion you feel at work? And they'll take a moment and they'll journal a little bit and they'll explain why they feel that way on their notebook. And then I'll ask everyone to close their eyes and I'll say, raise your hand if you wrote down a positive emotion. And what's sad is that in most of the rooms I go to, the minority of people raise their hand with that question. And so then I'll say, keep your hands up and open your eyes. And they'll open their eyes and they'll look around the room and they'll realize that maybe only 20% of the people in this room have a, pos- have a prevailing pro- positive emotion on a daily basis when they come to work. And so then it becomes a thunderclap moment for this room where they realize, wow, what I've been feeling may not be the same as everyone else, but we all don't feel good. Why don't we feel good? Maybe we all need to do something to change that, right? And so while that internal uh, uh, sense of empathy for a particular facet of yourself, like your emotional self, will help give you an insight for yourself, when then contrasted with the group, starts to really inspire the, the, the need for empathy to be more widespread in the organization, a deeper set of understanding to, re- to, to drive change. So I, I want to get into uh, this, the next point about West Point in a second, because that's of super interest to me. But, you know, in, at some level, we talked about the sort of the, the soft touch, the, the loosey-goosey em- emotion, empathy, sorry. At, at some level, if we're talking about self-awareness and, and, and hopefully to some level of self-empathy, it does seem to me that meditation is and yoga are really instrumental in in as part of getting there, yet can you do it well without it? I think so. I think that you, it certainly helps, no doubt about it. And uh, anyone who is putting time into mindfulness in some way, shape or form or self-care through yoga or some other practice is probably getting uh, a fast track uh, on this process. But there are certainly people who, eschew that for whatever reason, um, you know, founded or unfounded, uh, and can still practice cognitive empathy in a way that is valuable to their decision-making and leadership style. So that might be in the form of uh, interviews or conversation. They might be more, you know, they might be more uh, inclined to have dialogue than have uh internal meditative time um but they may still get to the same insight it might just take a little longer it might be harder to quiet the internal dialogue over time because that muscle is not as well trained all right so i'm thinking for this next question since uh, what you've said already uh somehow precedes it but in my book i talk about the the difficulty that i imagined of rendering hostile environments empathic and i specifically talked about the idea of of trying to tell all your prison guards and prisoners to be empathic and you know having been in a few prisons and observed what's going on 
it, it seemed to me from the outside that that would be a tall order to ask these people to show empathy to one another, uh, guards to prisoners, guards to guards and prisoners to prisoners. And yet, and then also in battle, because I, I had this other idea of, you know, in the trenches in the World War One, you're the, the lieutenant and you have your your men around you, your 30 men. You got you to run up, got up out of the trench and 18 of you won't be coming back. Come on, let's go, guys. Right. It, it just seems to me difficult in that condition for that lieutenant to to find empathy as he's you know willing everybody over uh, and yet so there you are <laughs> you've you've been working with west point and they've made it a salient point so you got to tell us a, correct me help me understand how how empathy is useful in a military environment which has got to be amongst the more hostile types of situations certainly and it's a it's it was probably in my past few years of doing this work, the most educational experience I've had in this in this work. So I'm happy to happy to share a little bit about it. So I was contacted by West Point, and they said we've been doing work researching the idea of empathy as a as a leadership tool, and we'd like to invite you up to have a conversation with some of us and to go a little deeper on this topic and to help us understand where it might play out. Um, so I was invited to come up and do a couple things. I uh, did a training with all of the um, athletic department and all of the team captains for all of the sports uh, across the uh, university. I was asked to do a capstone class with seniors who are focusing on strategic management. And, and this was the most uh, um, intimidating for me in the onset, uh, do a training with 50 career military uh generals and actually sit in a room with uh with folks who have spent their life in the military and work with them to use empathy to understand their leadership better and so i uh got to the base and started the course and started to chat with people but the first meeting i had was with the superintendent of the school who's a three-star military general um career military guy and i sat down and i asked what I was really reticent to ask, which is why am I here? Like this seems, this seems, this seems odd. And, uh, and he was gracious and he actually said, I, I know what you're probably thinking and I'll tell you why I think empathy is important. And he said a couple, a couple points that are worth repeating. One of them was that we are as a military, uh, civilian led, and I kind of took a pause at that moment and I, and, I, and I thought about it and I was asking myself, what does he mean by this? And so I said, what do you mean you're civilian led? And he said, well, we don't actually decide when we go to war. We don't decide who we fight. We don't decide what we deploy and where we deploy it. Congress does. And the president does. And we are at their beck and call. And yes, how we do it and uh, the ways in which we do it may, may be very well governed by us. But if we don't have the ability to perspective take, if we don't have the ability to really understand our civilian leadership, then what the hell are we sending our guys and girls in this country to go do? We don't know. We don't, if we don't understand why we're doing this and why they want us to go do this, then we're going blindly into battle for reasons we don't know. So the first and most important thing I need to train my cadets to understand is 
why we do what we do. And the only reason they're going to understand, the only way they're going to do that is with empathy for our civilian leadership. And I thought that was fascinating. I'd never thought about that in that context before, but it makes perfect sense. The second thing he said was, I am not in the war business. I am in the peace business. And my ideal state is not losing any soldiers and living in peacetime. He goes, we don't want to go to war. We don't want to leave our families. We don't want to be fighting. We don't want to come home with fewer people than we left with. And so one of the ways that empathy plays a role is not in the trench because when you're in those moments, you don't have the luxury of perspective taking. You can't say, I wonder what that person at the other end of this alley is thinking uh, and how they feel, right? You have to act and you have to act without hesitation. But there is downtime in battle. We don't fight in far off jungles exclusively anymore. He goes, there are a lot of our wars are fought in cities and a lot of our wars are fought in civil amidst civilian populations. And so let's say I have a soldier walking down a street in Kabul and he sees a or she sees a frightened child standing outside their family's market because there's this big foreign hulking body walking towards them in military gear and they don't understand what's going on. Am I training the type of soldier who will walk right past? Am I training the type of soldier who might notice that and take a knee and have a conversation and maybe get invited in and sit down for tea with that family and have a real dialogue about why we're here and it's a peacekeeping mission and it's not of this or it's not of that or what they're going through and they're fearful and, and or maybe that the, there's an insurgent population that we don't know about that actually this family does that might share a piece of intel that might actually save lives at some point. And he said that type of human to human interaction is what we need to not anesthetize but actually encourage in the leadership because West Point is a leadership academy. And we are training people who, when they graduate from here at 22 years old, and if you can remember what you were like at 22 years old, because I, I, I thought of myself in this situation, um, he said, look, they are responsible for 40 lives within six months of graduating from here. And if they don't know how to perspective take on those 40 lives, many of whom may not have a college education, may be coming straight out of high school and, and enrolled in the military, and these folks have to make an effort to really understand those in their command and make sure that they lead them effectively or else people are going to die. And, and then I'll close with this. The last thing he said, which I thought was also really just salient and interesting, was most people will not become career military people. Most people will do their tour maybe do a second tour, but then they will likely move into the private sector. He goes, and what I want to make sure of, because in my experience as a leader, I have learned over the years that the number one skill for leadership is really born out of, out of empathy. I want people to look down a resume, and at the bottom, when they see what education they have, if they see West Point, they know they're getting an empathic leader. Wow. That's, yeah. that's sort of legacy stuff. Absolutely. It was... it. it the, those talking points I have shared in so many meetings because most people have the same reaction I had, which is I never thought I would hear that from a military institution. And it, may, it made me feel so heartened to know that that's the type of thinking and that's the type of leadership that is taking place. What I take away from that, if I'm in business, is the localization of the need and maybe maybe the business cases the, the stories that you told 
it makes it come alive as you can just imagine the the soldier you know from all the footage we see on television we can imagine that soldier with that huge helmet and and all the gear and the you know semi-automatic or whatever he has in his hands and 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 how empathy could play a specific role in that moment as as he uh, typically walks by a a local villager right so um what are the things you mentioned uh, that presidents make decisions as uh, as far as uh, going to war, and that's what you have to deal with? Um, o- President Obama spoke about the empathy gap in the United States. Do you agree? And then uh, you, having worked with the White House uh, under Obama, tell us what you did there and, and whether you had a chance to chat with him about this particular topic, or at least who in there did you work with uh, in order getting to get to close this empathy gap? Yeah, so uh, I'll definitely start with saying I agree. Um, there is an empathy gap. I think that we have gotten myopic culturally, and and sort of our view is the only view. And you know, look no further than the polarization of the the way news is delivered across the five major news networks, and you'll and you'll see that the same facts get delivered in very different ways, and very little of it is objective, and it's it's all spun in certain directions to sort of appeal to different groups and uh, and as a result i think we kind of have picked our channel and assume that that is the only way the story is told right so our our perspective is sort of uh, myopically focused on um, our own bias um so the obama administration um we were fortunate enough to to be contacted uh in the last 18 months of the administration and it was because the president realized something uh really important. He realized that they had started a lot and weren't going to finish it if they didn't have help. Because 18 months is not a long amount of time to sort of close out on on the litany of initiatives that the Obama administration put forward. And government, no surprise to anybody, moves really slowly. And so they said, if we don't get some help from the private sector, we're not going to accomplish the promises we've made to people. And so there was a collection of about 30 organizations, ourselves included, that banded together and actually volunteered pro bono services to the administration during the last 18 months to two years of their uh, of their uh, administration in order to help take on certain problems that couldn't ordinarily get solved under the normal uh, the normal timeline. And so what we were asked to do was work directly with the, the West Wing and particularly the office of the First Lady on uh, on an initiative focused around STEM education in Indian country in, in uh, the Native American communities here in the U.S. And the reason for that was they realized that if we want to change the trajectory of these young lives in the on the reservation, um, a lot of work needs doing. The education system there is pretty broken. The connectivity there is often non-existent. I mean, some some communities, if they have internet, are running on dial-up still. Um, some you know some certainly do have you know broadband level connectivity, but most do not. And so, how are we going to? help these communities that are in such deep need, often deeper need than even our inner cities because of the lack of uh, connectivity and the lack of of technology, even just in the form of like computers and and equipment and things like that. And so one of the ways that they wanted to do that was through deep understanding, right, was through actually getting out into those communities and understanding what was happening. And Indian country here in the States is um, 
is not run in one clean cut way. The Department of the Interior has some responsibility. Department of Education has some responsibility. Um, you know, there, there's a whole litany of, of folks that kind of um, have visibility and responsibility. And sometimes there's overlaps and sometimes there's gaps. And so we had to come in and do an assessment of this program, which is called Generation Indigenous, and look at the indigenous communities and understand where the gaps are, what the communication strategy should be, what the efforts in order to bring um, sort of higher, higher level uh, education and, and programs, particularly around STEM, uh, into those communities, and what private sector partnerships might we be able to build vis-a-vis organizations like Hewlett Packard or Google or others um, that could help sort of put more, uh, fan the flames a bit more to help accelerate the, the pace of that work. Um, and so that was, that was the piece of work we actually dove into and spent about 18 months working on for them. Well, that's, and got, go and ahead. got to work with the first lady during that work, which was also really pretty amazing. Mm. Well, it, my takeaway, of course, um, and, and it's a nonpartisan thought, is the, the idea of government working with private sectors is probably extremely wholesome in terms of injecting efficiency models and effectiveness into what we know, as you said many times, is a very slow, clunky situation. And and um, anyway, so I, I applaud that fully as well as the mission that you worked on. So brilliant. So um, we we I, I need to let you go and do your regular activity, Michael. Um, <laughs> I know that you are going to be speaking at South by Southwest. Uh, so I'd like to plug your session there on Monday at South by the Monday. I guess that's the 10th, 11th. 11th there I you think. go. Yeah. And uh, tell us how can anyone track you down, follow you, or of course uh, get in touch with you if they're interested in bringing some cognitive empathy into their organization. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And thanks for that. Um, AppliedEmpathy.com is is certainly one of the the easiest memorable ways of doing so. Um, also, WeAreSubRosa.com, which is the agency's website. Um, both of those places have a good uh, set of information related to the book, upcoming speaking engagements, and ways to get in touch to continue dialogue. Beautiful. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDialogue.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way To rid me of the gray And heal That you mention in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me tightly, slowly we would paint a lover's portrait with all your. in our palms 
of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 